James 5, verse 13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. We talked about if you're suffering, we use some S words. Suffering. If you are smiling. So if you're suffering, pray. If you're smiling, sing praises. Is anyone, third S word, among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, that's our last S word, sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, in light of this verse, in light of this truth, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah, our example, illustration, was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, James is going to end with a charge. If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. May the Lord write his word on our hearts. Now, last time we were together, we moved rather slowly and we ended in verse 15 when we talked about the prayer offered in faith. We talked about how if someone is sick, they're to call for the leadership of the church. Notice a plurality of elders, verse 14. Uh, the, the local church, plurality of elders and leadership, they are to pray over that individual, anointing him or her with oil in the name of the Lord or in the name of the sovereign God of the universe. We could say, even say in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, and that is an important point here because sin may be at the heart of the issue, they will be forgiven him. Now, we talked about how James certainly sounds like he's made a categorical statement here. And we asked the question, is, is there a guarantee of healing in this passage? And my answer is, there's a guarantee of healing in the way that God wants to heal you. Sometimes sickness becomes a vehicle for introspection. Sometimes sickness, whether it could be a physical malady or even depression and that kind of thing, can be a chance for deep introspection. And there are cases to be made in the New Testament where people end up sick because of sin. Now, one of the cases is in John chapter 5, and this is what hit me this week, in fact, in the last uh, 24 hours. I was thinking about the man at the pool of Bethesda, and he had been sick in the condition for 38 years. It was a feast of the Jews. Some believe it was Passover. Jesus shows up at the pool of Bethesda. By the way, that pool has been discovered. If you go on a trip to Israel, you'll be able to see the pool, which is way under ground level now, and the church of St. Anne's has been built at this location. And Jesus was at the pool, and he, he saw this guy. Jesus initiates it. There's all these sick people. And he says to this man, do you want to be made well? And interestingly enough, Bethesda actually means the house of outpouring, or get this, the house of mercy and grace. And when Jesus, after Jesus heals the man, 
he says to him, Go and sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. This is one of the cases where scholars believe that the sickness was due to sin. This man had caused his own problem, if you will, and he was delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ. There are other cases, in fact, later in the book of John, where the disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was uh, born blind? And Jesus debunks the idea that all sin is the result of, uh, all, all sickness is the result of sin when he says, neither this man nor his parents sin, but this has happened that the glory of God may be manifest in this man. You could reference John 5, 1 through 18 for the first case. John 9 is the second case of the man born blind. And so there's, we can't be emphatic, we can't make dogmatic statements on the cause of why someone is in the situation they are in. And we must be careful as we look on to other situations that we don't become the judge and the jury as to why someone's in the situation that they are in. Look, we live in a fallen world. And if the pool of Bethesda says anything, it says that there are a bunch of people who are just in fallen situations, sickness, you know, paralyzed, blindness, you name it, because we live in a fallen world. This world is not what it was supposed to be. And so Jesus, when he comes on the scene and touches a life, he raises them up in every respect. Keep in mind that of all the people that Jesus physically healed, many, many people that he touched in his earthly ministry, they were all going to die again. That, that, uh, healing, if you will, was for a season. You could say it was for a time span. Even Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, would have to die a second time. So that's kind of the bummer about the story of Lazarus, right? Is that he'd have to die a second time. So we as people, sometimes we think in the immediate, the short term, I want the fix now. And when I'm hurting and suffering, when my body's out of whack, when I'm suffering with some sickness or malady, many of you have been dealing with things for a long, long time. I do want an immediate fix. I admit it. When I pray to God, I say, can you take this away and can you do it now? But God is sovereign. And the prayer of faith is object-oriented. Enough of this nonsense about faith in our faith, or you just have to have the right formula. You know, that, that's nonsense. It is faith in God and ultimately in the sovereignty of God. Faith is a word for trust. If you're going to pray the prayer of faith, it's a synonym for trust. It's the prayer of trust. When you are praying, you're saying, Lord, I trust you in this situation. This person is going to be specially set apart with the oil being a symbol of the Holy Spirit, a symbol of you operating, setting them aside for your divine operations. But ultimately, if they're healed, it's going to be because you heal them. Not the oil, not my faith. If they're healed, it's going to be because God heals them. Amen? Amen. So we have to be very careful when we come to these kinds of situations. Now, I do want to show you something I touched on last time. It's in 1 Corinthians 12, and it's exploring this idea of what the prayer of faith is. Let's, let's turn there. And, and I mentioned to you as you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that I believe the prayer of faith is simply this. I believe that God will give faith in the moment, extra faith, faith that that person can be healed, going with a gift of healing that the Lord gives in the moment. But I do believe that that's going to be in the moment. I'm not sure, and you can, we can debate this later. I'm not sure that anybody's walking around with the gift of healing. That is, I don't know that anybody can walk around 
and heal anybody at any time they want to. And if they have that gift, then I don't know why they're not at chalk right now. I don't know why you got to put on a white suit and have a crusade. If you have the gift of healing, just go to all the hospitals and everybody you touch should be healed. We don't need the music. We don't need the, the big production. We need you to go and touch many, many, many sick people. Amen? So here's the thing. We need to make sure we understand that theologically, ultimately, God is in charge. I think of Daniel when Daniel and his, uh, his uh, actually, this is his three friends, They said, we believe our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. We believe he will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, that's faith. Even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow to your statue, Nebuchadnezzar. That's faith. Now, here's the passage I wanted to show you. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 7. But to each one, this is in the body of Christ, is given, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. It's a gift. The manifestation of the Spirit For the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives this. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, notice, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. Notice that faith and healing are both in verse 9. To one, the effecting of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the, the distinguishing of spirits to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, just mentioned in these verses, distributing to each one individually just as what? As He wills. Ultimately, the gifts of the Spirit are under the sovereign canopy of God's grace, and He distributes them as He wills. The Apostle Paul, would you say he had a good relationship with Jesus? Yeah, but Paul prayed three times that a thorn in his flesh would be removed and he was told, no, my grace is sufficient for you. So Paul said, I'm going to rejoice in my uh, weaknesses, in my infirmities. And Paul said the reason for the thorn was to keep him humble. I'll say this, I don't like that idea. I don't like the idea that if there's a thorn in my flesh to keep me humble, but the reality is, biblically, God does do that. That's within the... Uh, ideas of the scriptures that we have to see that the Lord can use these kinds of shortcomings to keep us leaning on Him. And then I want to share a story with you because I think this is relevant as well as you turn back to James. There's a story about uh, a gentleman who says, I was in a church in Oregon not too long ago and I prayed for a man, this is a pastor talking, who had cancer. In the middle of the week, I got a telephone call from his wife. She said, you prayed for my husband, he had cancer. And I said, had? And I was thinking, whoa, something good's happened here. And she said, he died. He said, I felt terrible. She continued, don't feel bad. When he came into church, into that church last Sunday, he was filled with anger. He knew he he was going to be dead in a short period of time, and he hated God. He was 58 years old, and he wanted to see his children, grandchildren grow up. He was angry that this all-powerful God didn't take away his sickness and heal him. He would lie in bed and curse God. The more his anger towards God grew, the more miserable he was to everybody around him. It was an awful thing to be in his presence. After you prayed for him, a peace came over him and a joy had come into him. She says, Pastor, the last three days have been the best days of our lives. We've sung, we've laughed, we've read scripture, we prayed, 
Oh, they've been wonderful days. And I call to thank you for laying your hands on him and praying for healing. And then she said something incredibly profound we need to hear. She said, he wasn't cured, but he was healed. And death, you know, is the ultimate healing for the Christian, right? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We are actually going to be healed of all these besetting maladies of this fallen world when we die. And of course, in the resurrection, when we get this new body and in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. These are things we must factor in as we look at uh, verses like this. Do you, do you want to be made well? There are some people who, you know, in their given situation, they don't want to follow the divine prescription for healing. Maybe you are in that boat this morning. Maybe you've been fighting God in different ways and God's trying to get your attention. There is a divine prescription for healing. And here's, a, a, therefore, a connecting word in verse 16. Therefore, in light of what James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Would you notice, Bible students, that how can you do these kinds of one another commands unless you're in community? This is very communal. This is very body of Christ, body life oriented. How can you fulfill what we just read in James 5.16 unless you are with other Christians? How can you pray for one another? How can you confess to one another so that you may be healed unless you're in a community or a local church of saints? And so here's the idea of confession. What does it mean to confess sin? It means to acknowledge. It means to agree fully. It means to say the same thing. That's the idea of the word. To agree with God about your sin and to confess it. Confession really goes with repentance. How can you really repent of a sin unless you've confessed it to God? And so I want to give you some guidelines here and I want to tell you that this is body life. This is not you going to a priest to confess and get absolution. I don't see that in this passage. This is to one another. This is a community of believers. You could envision a small group. You could envision a group of friends that you have that are Christians. And you open up to someone, and I would say to you, if you confess to someone, just make sure it's someone that you trust. And make sure it's someone that doesn't struggle with gossip. Amen? Some guidelines. The area of commission of sin should be the area of confession. If you're a note taker, the area of commission should be the area of confession. If you sinned against somebody, that's the person you should go and confess that sin to. You should go to them. There are certain sins that maybe you just have to do some business with God like David did after his sin with Bathsheba. He had some other fixing to do, but he confessed his sin to God. He said, Against you and you alone have I sinned. Your sin and my sin is first of all vertical, but it is also horizontal. I need to confess to God and then it's in the area of commission. Number two, if you're going to confess your sin, make sure you test your motives. Choose carefully. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And if you do confess it to someone, make sure that there's an agreement that you're going to leave it there. I would also say keep short accounts with God. Leave sin behind and understand that what it is and get to a point where you loathe it. You, you are tired of confessing the same sin. <laughs> I 
Another point. Don't confess sin just to get attention for yourself. Don't go before a group of people and say, yeah, I can top that. My life is such a shambles. You won't believe what I did this week. Right? Sometimes there's an unhealthy situation where someone wants to throw out all their dirty laundry to be the center of attention. Please don't do that. Make sure that if you're going to confess sin, it's because there's something that you're truly wrestling with and you need others to come alongside you. There are people who have an unhealthy obsession with attention and sharing the details of their sin. Uh, R. Kent Hughes calls it a perverted moral pleasure in airing one's dirty laundry. It's not healthy. And it's unhealthy both ways. It's unhealthy for the person airing their dirty laundry and it's unhealthy for the person listening. Especially if one gets overly morbid about their confession with getting into the details. Oh, tell me more. It can, it can actually turn into a sinful thing. We've got to be careful. I also would warn you against hyper-introspection. You know, there are times in life when you just have to cut yourself a break and realize you're a person who's still struggling with the world, the flesh, and the devil, just like all of us. Amen? Amen. If you are nitpicking yourself to death, would you stop? Would you allow yourself to receive the same grace that you preach to others? It's hard, isn't it? Because sometimes we preach it to others, but then we expect perfection from ourselves. You're not going to be perfect. Your life, your Christian life, is not about perfection, but it is about direction. It's about the overarching theme of your life, not that you're not going to stumble from time to time. And please make sure that you avoid spiritual aggression or passive aggressiveness. Don't go to a person and say, I'd like to confess a bunch of bad thoughts that I've been having about you in the last couple of years. <laughs> I need to get this off my chest. Please don't tell me all the bad thoughts that you've had about me in the last couple of years. I really don't want to know. <laughs> now, I would say confess those to God and leave them there and then just stop. I think that would be a good thing. Don't make confession about a religious routine. Don't make it about, oh, my system of belief says I've got to do this to be right with God, so I'm just going to go ahead and I'll, I'll circle through the carousel and confess whatever I can think of so that I can do my routine so I can be right with God because that's something that they said you got to do. No. Confession comes from the heart. It's a heartfelt, Lord, I've sinned against you. I don't want to do this. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. What does confession do? It purifies, it restores, it removes the hindrances to pure fellowship. Confession and repentance go together. Confession leads to healing. There's a mutual confession here to one another, not to an elite priesthood. And the result is so that, look at the verse, so that you may be healed. You confess so that you may be healed. Confession, we often joke, is good for the soul, but it actually is. Because when you make things right with an individual that you've sinned against, or especially with God, there's a healing that takes place. There's an honesty, a transparency that leads to healing. Remember, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, that is the man Christ Jesus. And when you confess sin, you go to our high priest who can sympathize and empathize with your weaknesses. 
You know that about Jesus? He actually can sympathize and empathize with your weaknesses because he was in all points tested as we, yet without sin. But he still has compassion for us. He knew Peter was going to fall. And he said, Peter, when you've turned again, encourage your brethren. He, he knows what we face. He knows the sins that so easily entangle us. And he tells us, run this race. Break the chains. Keep your eyes on me. I love you. I've never stopped loving you. There's a range of healing that takes place because the issue here is sin in verse 16. And so the issue could be spiritual healing, emotional healing. It's a broad range, which could include, of course, physical healing, which we saw in verse 15. When this is done right, when it is spirit-directed, it can become a fuel for revival. Personal revival and church revival. When we get sin out into the light where it loses power. Sin has its greatest power when we keep it in the dark, when we hide it. But when we put it into the light, sin loses its power. But it's hard to put it into the light because we don't want anybody to know. But when we confess it, sometimes here's what happens. It comes into the light and all of a sudden it doesn't look so powerful anymore or so overwhelming. One writer says, such confession was at the heart of a small group meeting which fueled the Methodist movement. Indeed, confession has been at the heart of periodic revivals which have graced the American church since New England's great awakening. And so we have this idea of confessing sin. And then notice at the end of 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, Elijah's going to be the example, but remember, Elijah had a like nature as ours. Sometimes we feel, man, I'm not the person to pray in this situation because I don't have the goods. I'm not a super saint. Does it take a super saint to have an effective prayer? No. All it, do, all it takes is a righteous person. A person who's trying to live right. A person who's in communion with God has the power of prayer behind them because behind prayer is the power of God. And so you, if you're walking with the Lord Jesus and someone calls you to a situation, you don't have to call the church office. Just go pray for them. Just go pray. There may be some situations where you need to call a pastor, maybe a situation where you don't know what to do, but in most cases, if you're walking with the Lord Jesus, this is about the body of Christ, and this is about us praying, and it would be good, don't you think, that on a Sunday morning, all around the room, after a sermon is given, after worship is given, that there would be prayer going on for one another. This is about the body of Christ. This is about community. This is about something much more than coming into a building and being an observer or listening to a message and then you go on your way without being healed because you didn't take the extra steps of the implications of the word of God. James says, don't just hear the word and don't do anything with it. If God has convicted you in a certain area, do business with him now. Amen? Amen. Do it now. Because the enemy says, put it off, put it off, put it off. You say, well, Pastor Michael, I'm not like Elijah. This is, this is the guy that battled Ahab and Jezebel. He took on the prophets of Baal. He raised the dead. He multiplied a widow's oatmeal and oil, meal and oil. He, he ate from the beaks of ravens. He feasted in the wilderness with, from the hands of angels. He foretold a famine of 
uh, in the coming rain. He outran Ahab's chariot to Jezreel. This dude was fast. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah is coming. Malachi 4. He's one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11. This dude is a super saint. Oh, but he had his moments. Remember when he was alone? I think he was in the cave and he said, Lord, I'm the only one left. Just kill me now. <laughs> it's too much. There are times when I feel like a super saint and times when I feel like a super ain't. <laughs> right? The qualifications for an effective prayer is just simply that you're trying to walk with God. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was human, and he prayed earnestly. Literally, he prayed with prayer, or pray, in prayer he prayed. It was fervent that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Do you know why Elijah's prayer was so effective? Because he prayed God's will. And the Lord held back the rain for three and a half years because that's what God wanted to do in the land at that time. And often, if not always, here's what happens. Your prayers simply become a channel to tap into God's will. If we pray according to his will, we know that he hears us and we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If you pray outside his will, He's not going to answer you. And if you get, if you pray for something and you get something outside God's will, look out. You don't want it. Do you want to be outside the will of God? Then, then don't pray for things that are unbiblical. I really believe I'm the exception and I should be living with my boyfriend. No, you're not the exception. That's outside of God's will. Frankly, you don't even need to pray about that one. You don't. Because there's a scripture verse that says, be pure until you're married. Hello? But I prayed about it. Well, you didn't hear the voice of God. More things are wrought by prayer, says Tennyson, than this world dreams of. Wherefore, let thy voice rise like a fountain for me night and day. For what are men better than sheep and goats that nourished a blind life within the brain? If knowing God, they lift not hands of prayer, both for themselves and those who call them friend. For so the whole round earth is every way bound by gold chains about the feet of God. Why do we not pray? Why don't we seek the face of our Father? Why don't we spend time with him? It's been said that the devil fears most a saint on his or her knees. And this is why when you try to get into a pattern of prayer, the enemy will oppose you at every turn. He doesn't want you praying, and he certainly doesn't want you reading your Bible. Now, unlike a lot of the letters in the New Testament that end with a benediction or greetings to different individuals, James ends his book with a charge, and it's glorious. And it's so fitting for the book of James because James has been rubber meets the road in my kitchen for five chapters. Would I expect any less at the end of the book of James? Uh-uh. He doesn't say, all right, the Lord bless you, brethren. Hang in there. The love of the Spirit, the joy. No, he says, my brethren, get busy. <laughs> 
If any among you, any among you, any one of your number, strays from the truth and one turns him back. My brethren, we are the subject, the church. If any among you strays, who is this straying individual? Are they someone who is a true Christian who has apostatized and they've gone out into the world much like the prodigal and they're in trouble? Are they a professing Christian that was never born again and so they've strayed because they don't know Jesus anyway? May I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that if you want to understand these issues and hear what Jesus said, Jesus told a key parable called the parable of the sower or the soils. You remember he gave us four kinds of soils. One was the seed beside the road. And the birds quickly come and, and grab that seed. And that's a picture of Satan stealing the word because the seed of the word of God, the gospel, just sits on the surface. It does, there's no penetration. And then there's the rocky soil convert, so to speak. And this is a person that the seed goes in, but there's no root, there's no depth. There's limestone underneath in Israel. And so what happens is it sprouts quickly and there seems to be joy and a great response, but there's no root. And so the sun scorches it. Times of persecution come and so forth and it doesn't bear any fruit. There's a third one. It's, it's the seed sown among the thorns, remember? And here's a seed that begins to grow up, like a lot of our plants in Corona, and it starts to get choked by these weeds that seem to need no water and seem to come from some alien planet. They have prickly things on them, and they begin to wrap your good plants. And here's the picture. It's the cares of this world. It's the deceitfulness of riches, and it chokes the word. And the word produces no crop. And then the fourth soil is one that's sown among the good soil. It's been prepared. It's receptive. And it bears a crop 30, what is it, 30, 60, and 100 fold. It bears a harvest. He who has ears to hear, let him hear, says Jesus. You think James heard that sermon? Only one of the soils produces fruit, produces a crop. The other soils that received the same seed did not produce. And here's why. The issue is the condition of the soil, which in the parable is a synonym for your heart. This is really what it all boils down to. How receptive are you as an individual? In Hebrew thought, your heart is the center of your mind, will, emotions, and intellect. It's the core of who you are. When the seed goes forth, does it go into your heart? Is your intention when you hear the word of God to actually do it? Well, some people say yes, but then there's, you know, the, the seed is plucked or it doesn't go deep or it gets choked off. Persecution or the cares of this world. This is what Jesus said. And Jesus indicated, by the way, that this parable unlocks all the other parables. It gives us a view of what's happening Oftentimes on a Sunday morning when a group gathers or a harvest crusade where there's a huge response and then you do follow-up at the harvest crusade. And I've done it. And you call 
and you say, hey, we've got a new believers class and we'd love for you to come and you live in our city. And they say, oh, oh I, I, no, I just walked down on the field because I wanted to pluck a couple blades of grass where Mike Trout stands. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the crusade. Praise God for much fruit that's happened there. But I'm saying the soils are represented when people walk down. Because the real test will be in five, ten years when I watch that person's life and see how they're doing. To find out what was really going on there. Now, I'm not saying that it's not a battle for genuine Christians because we all know it is. I'm not trying to get you to question your salvation. If you're a genuine Christian who's battling the world, the flesh, and the devil, that's not the intent here. But the intent is for you to know that the reality is that only one in four of these soils actually produced a harvest, produced a crop. And James says, look, if there's people among you who stray from the truth, just think about it. If you stray from the truth, where do you go? Think about it. What's your option if you stray from the truth? There's only one place to go, and that's to a world of lies. You're going to live in a lie if you stray from the truth. That's, that's door B. Door A is the one who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Ephesians 4.21 says, the truth is in Jesus. That's door A. You choose door B, you've chosen the lie. That's all you got. You got the truth and you got the lie. And if someone strays from the truth, this is what happens. Now, the idea of straying is one who wanders away. The one who strays is one who has heard the truth, been in the community. They're a churchgoer. They've heard the message. But maybe they're a rocky soil hearer. They've heard the truth, but they stray. Planao is the Greek word. It means to lead astray, to lead aside from the right way, to go astray, to wander, to roam about, to apostatize, to lead someone away from the truth. Can you see their faces? How many people do you believe over the years that the Christian church has preached the gospel have apostatized from the faith? How many people could you say in your own life, I don't even know where that person is today, and they were part of the believing community and even preaching the gospel, and now I don't even know spiritually where they stand? Well, this is the reality. People are wandering away all the time. And you say, well, what's my response supposed to be? What, what should I do? You're to go get them. You're, you're to turn them. Notice, if any among you strays from the truth and one, end of 19, turns him back, we're supposed to be in the reclamation business. We don't all just go make new converts, if you will. We try to get people who have been straying to come back home. You say, well, how do you do that, Pastor Michael? Your main weapon to get people back to the truth, oh, get ready for it, is truth. Oh, I know that was heavy. Buckle your seatbelt. See if you can think this through for a second. The way to get people back to the truth is by truth spoken in love. So what happens when someone wanders away is they start to wall themselves off from the truth. They don't hear the word of God as regularly anymore. They 
they go, like Adam and Eve, what did they do? They hid from God after they sinned. They, instead of being in the sweet fellowship with God, they hid. That's what sin does. It will cause you to hide from the one that loves you the most. How sad and tragic. Well, what does this mean? That every time I'm supposed to run after the person that's not been in church for three weeks? Precisely. No, I'm just kidding. That might be a little much. Hey, we haven't seen you around for a couple of days. What's going on? It's on vacation, man. <laughs> Sometimes in this pursuit of wanderers, you have to let them go for a while. The prodigal story. I want my inheritance, Dad, and I want it now. I'm 14 now, and I got everything figured out. Okay. What? If you were standing in the room, would you, what do you mean? Okay. But that dad in that situation, as Jesus tells the story, he says, go. And he goes. And he's got the inheritance. He's got some bags of gold. And he goes off to the bright lights in the big city. And he lives it up. He's got all these friends. And it's a great time. Yeah, yeah. I knew I was missing out on the family farm. This is what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you look into your pockets one day and you go, oh, I guess you have to work or invest to keep making money. Oh, Where's all my friends that were part of this great time we were having? Oh, there's a famine in the land. I can't find work. Oh, there's a Gentile farm owner. Maybe he'll hire me. Oh, the pig's food looks really, really good. Oink, 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 oink. Give me some of that. You're in the mud on a Gentile farm with unclean pigs, and then all of a sudden you go, oh. Even my father's hired servants live better than this. I know what I'll do. And he came to his senses. And he went home. The father didn't chase him. But when he came back, do you remember what happened? The father had open arms for him. But he knew in that cir circumstance, the son was going to have to learn in the school of hard knocks, end up in the pig pen before he came to his senses. And we're going to have to pray for discernment in knowing which mode to use because some of you have prodigal kids and grandkids and friends and sometimes you've pleaded with them and you've met with them and then you say Lord I'm just going to release them to you and I'm going to pray for them and I'm going to keep the relationship going and I'm going to pray that they come home I'm going to share truth to bring them back to the truth I think there's another thing that we need to realize and it's this we need to have love because people who stray and people who wander could be you and me. It doesn't take much. Some hurt, some wound, some inexplicable happening to get angry with God or mad at the church and all of a sudden find yourself to be a wanderer. Some of you who are sitting here today or listening to my voice have wandered many times and you've come back home. And I'm sure it wasn't some legalistic Christian pounding on you that brought you back to the fold. But when one of the 99 leaves, the good shepherd goes and pursues it and brings it back rejoicing. Here's what we need to know, and this is the final verse. Let him know, anybody who's about this, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way, and I would submit to you, this may be a person who never knew Christ, who was a false convert, 
but we can wrestle with this. He who turns a sinner from the error of his way. See, it's his way. It's not God's way. He's gone his way. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, that way leads to death. Let, let me ask you, you, you guys know that we're doing, uh, we're, we're wrestling with the topic of homosexuality tonight. I did an interview with Roger Marsh on Friday. We did about a half an hour together, and I said, here's my concern, Roger. The way that the world is going now, it, we've gone from a place where there was tolerance in the original definition of tolerance and acceptance on that level. We've redefined tolerance now. Then we, we move to, I've got to celebrate something that I believe is unbiblical and sinful, to now being scared into silence. Now there's a law coming down the pike in the state of California that if you say something or if you get somebody to think about their situation and you give them a book or something to help them with that, it could be illegal. Could I say to you that we are bordering on the sin of omission if we do that? We really are, but that's where we are right now. And so we need to have wisdom for the times, of course. But how can we turn someone from the error of their way if we don't even have a chance to talk to them about the real issues of the day? If we withhold truth from people, and I'm going to say this to my pastor uh, peers in the pulpits all around America. If you withhold truth from people, truth sets people free. Amen. Truth sometimes does a surgery on me. I don't like it most of the time, right? Ooh, ow, ooh, it opens me up. But then God sutures that area so that I can be better, so I can be free, so I can be healed. If we don't give the healing balm of truth to our world because we're feeling pressure, political correctness, scared into silence, you name it, then we withhold the actual remedy for a dying world. It's true. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's always easy to navigate. But James ends the book by saying, look, if we turn a sinner from the error of his way, Back to God's way, we will save his soul from death. The word thanatos all over the New Testament speaks of the eschatological second death of hell separated from God forever. Do you believe that that's what's at stake? We say we do. We say we believe you're either going to end up in heaven or hell. But then how we conduct ourselves sometimes in ministry and otherwise doesn't always match that belief. See, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus said. That's not what I said. That's what Jesus said. And so when I preach the gospel to someone, my hope and prayer is to turn them to Jesus, the truth. Not to an institution, not to a building, not to certain days of worship during the week. Those are all good things, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the one who saves. His name is Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Do you believe that? Jesus saves. It's been preached for 2,000 years and it will be true until he returns in glory and it will be true for all time. Jesus saves. 
We need a Savior. And so the book ends with a radical call. If you turn a sinner from the error of his way, you will actually save his soul from spiritual death, the second death, and by virtue of that, cover, notice, many, many sins, a multitude of sins. It's amazing to me to think about how many sins have been covered in my life by Jesus Christ. The fact that on Judgment Day, I'm not going to have to give an account for one of my sins because they were nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ is really good news. Really good news. That's why we say the gospel is really good news. Your sin dealt with in a whole, in full, in totality at the cross. Grab the rescue. Hold on to the lifeline. His name is Jesus. Father, it's a trustworthy statement. It deserves full acceptance, says Paul, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. When we preach this, Lord, we realize that we're part of this. We're on the same sinking boat. My sin was ugly before you, just like everybody else's sin. Some of the sins that we may not mention or think are as bad is still sin. And the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, what a Savior we have. Amazing, amazing grace. Keep your head and heart bowed. If you've not met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, now is the time. I don't know why you would wait a moment longer. Something like this, Lord Jesus, I believe in who you are, that you're God, that you came on a rescue mission to save me. You became a man. I thank you that you died on that cross in my place, took my punishment, took, my, took the wrath of God, took my shame at the cross. Thank you for your precious blood that was spilled, for your sacrificial death. Pray it if it's you. Lord, thank you for your triumphant resurrection. Thank you that you rose from the dead and defeated death itself. And that is a reality that gives me hope. You're a savior. You're my Lord. Be my Lord. Be my savior. If, you're, if you've been a wanderer, it's time to come back home. You may just say, Lord, I just want to rededicate my life to you. I, I've been a prodigal. I've ended up in the pig pen too many times. I'm sorry. And he'll have open arms for you because he loves you and he's never stopped loving you. Father, for those who are crying out in the quietness of their heart or even have spoken this prayer, may you bless them. May you meet them where they are. May their will be bent toward your will because they're not only calling you Savior, but Lord. And help us in the areas where we're weak, Lord. Help us in the areas where we fail. Where maybe your lordship, you know, we've pushed it aside in a certain area of our life. May you become Lord of all, all areas of my life. Help us in that, Lord. Help your church in these areas of weakness. We want to thank you and praise you for the book of James. It's been a rich, wonderful time for us, Lord, as a church. I believe we've grown as a result of being challenged in this way. 
And we thank you so much. And I just pray your sweet blessings on your people. Those who are brand new to the faith, those who have been walking with you for many years, just may you just pour out mercy and grace overflowing into their lives. In Jesus' name I pray and all God's people said, amen.